I haven't arrived. I'm not super successful. I'm just real. Yeah. Welcome to the Beautiful Project Podcast. What's it going to take for you, like you said, to see me? How? I don't understand. A place for ordinary women sharing extraordinary truths. I am fat. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm so much, you know, I'm learning to tell myself that I am so much more. Let my hair grow out. I can wear the clothes I want to wear. I can eat what I want to eat. Who are waiting for you to be their witness. If I can do anything, I want to be able to inspire people to just be their best. Welcome back to the Beautiful Project podcast. It's been many months since I've been with you. I had a season planned, a season three, The Mamas and the Makers, all about the ways that women take up space in the world. And that season felt extremely relevant before the pandemic. Um, During the pandemic, it made no sense at all. I was talking to women who are business owners and um, often single entrepreneurs who are super creative and trying to figure out how to sort of uh, corner their market. And it was, uh, it was really timely. And then the world flipped upside down. And so what happens to me in those situations is that rather than dive all the way in and try to figure out how to stay relevant, I tend instead to get quiet and watch and listen and learn. And um, I feel like I'm emerging from that. But part of the reason why I'm emerging from that in the podcast is actually because of today's guest. So um, today's guest had reached out to a mutual friend and asked for an introduction because she wanted to tell her story. And just that request alone reminded me of the origin of the podcast that I don't know that I've ever actually shared on the podcast. It was probably five or six years ago. I was sitting in O'Hare Airport, and I was eating lunch, and I was watching this woman um, across the airport. She was definitely on a work call. She seemed super stressed out. I watched her pull her blazer in front of her, and you could just tell she was extremely uncomfortable and agitated. And I just kept my eyes on her for a while and had this overwhelming sense that she had something to say to the world, that ordinary women have extraordinary truth to share with the world. And at the time, I had just discovered Humans of New York, so you may or may not be familiar, but it's this photojournalism project that's just exceptional. It takes ordinary people on the street, and he takes their picture, and he tells their story, and I don't take pictures, but I do words. I do talk. And so I decided that that was what I wanted, is that I wanted this space to be about ordinary women and their extraordinary truth. And I got off track, if I'm being completely candid. I tried to figure out how to stay on trend with like, you know, if you're a podcaster, you're supposed to produce content every week. And if you can't do that, then you should have seasons that are topical. And honestly, I just don't give a shit about any of that anymore. What I want is a return to the home, the home idea here. And the home idea was the world is full of women who are not asked to tell their stories and have no space to do it. And my only job, my only purpose in that was to give them space to do that. And so we're back to doing that. I have no idea what that means. Like there aren't really going to be seasons. I don't know how often this is going to happen. But I know that any time that a woman comes to me and says, I have a truth I want to tell, my answer is yes. And I hope that yours is too. So thank you for that. I'll bet you did not know, Adrian, that that is um, what your request 
offered me. Uh, but there are some things that are similar, and, and one of those things is that I don't really know Adrian's story yet. Not completely. I know parts. She and I met for coffee. Um, it didn't take me long to know that for sure this is what I wanted to do, that I wanted to sit down with her and just have a conversation. So welcome to the microphone. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, I do want to open up because I don't know your story. I want to give you a chance to talk to the audience first and just let anybody in the audience know um, what may or may not be triggering about your uh, about what you want to share. So I didn't do this very well in the survivor season. I didn't warn the audience uh, about what might be coming. And so as a result, I think self-care was a little bit difficult and I want to not do that again. So so when it comes to a trigger warning, what is it uh, sort of generally that you think you'll be sharing today? Well, it's there's a, it could, there's a lot of triggers. Um, I talk about domestic violence. I talk about um, human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, I've dealt with suicide by you know my brother committing suicide. I talk about being molested as a child and being bullied in school. So lots losing, of violence. Lots of violence and mm-hmm. lots of loss in my family and mm-hmm. losing my mother and then losing my brother. Tell me why you want to share your story. It's time because I feel like, you know, when they say the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, I have to just like let it go so I can just be me again, you know, so I can stop carrying the burden mm-hmm. of my story, my life. I heard once this, it's a quote from a movie, and the movie's actually super cheesy. But I once heard this uh, idea that what we crave in the world is a witness, that we have somebody to witness us. And I think this space, this audience can provide that for women. Uh, We can show up for each other this way, virtually, and provide a witness for each other. So I'm really uh, grateful for your willingness to do that and to be willing to lay it down and say, well, what's next for me? I'm grateful as well, because I'm hoping that someone will hear my story and be able to tell their story as well. Awesome. So I'm going to let you start wherever you want to start, and then I'll just ask questions along the way. So if you, uh, what is sometimes most helpful um, is to have a spot to start. So maybe earliest memory, maybe earliest memory in relationship to these things. Um, Sometimes being linear or chronological is useful. And sometimes you just want to start at the end and work your way backwards. Oh, this is a hard one. Um, I can go from the beginning. My mother was, um, it wasn't the best relationship. Mm-hmm. My fa- She was married to my biological father, who was very abusive. You know, he come to find out he's a Vietnam vet, so he's got PTSD issues. And mm-hmm. um, I don't really remember a whole lot of my childhood, because I've completely blocked a lot of things out. I just remember him, like, one point when I was a kid bringing me a cake, and then I never saw him again mm-hmm. until I was about 16 when my grandmother died. Mm-hmm. And he was mad because I just wouldn't, you know, we inherited money, and he didn't, and that's all basically he came back for. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, you know, and then I was conflicted. And then that's when I was, you know, a teenager, so I was just pretty... Wild. I was already going to the school that I wasn't happy at because we moved, and I was, you know, I was being bullied, you know, because mm-hmm. I was a bigger girl, mm-hmm. and people would just judge me 
and I look back and I wasn't even that fat. You know, it's like, really? Mm, yeah. You know, it's, I just don't understand it. Well, that's an, I mean, that's a topic that we talk about a lot inside of the project is fat phobia and the culture that that creates and the violence that that creates. I don't think people often associate the idea of bullying with being violent, but it's extraordinarily violent. Um, Did you always experience your body as being bigger than other bodies? Um, yeah, because my mom would just like, you know, she would just pinpoint things, you know, like you don't want to eat because, you know, but that was my coping mechanism, you know, that was the way. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I dealt with things. I just fed my, you know, emotions Mm -hmm. and, um, but it was just, you know, I would eat. Just like I remember a time that I had Girl Scout cookies and I hid them in my room because, and then I ate them all. My parents were like, oh my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, it was the self medicate. And I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that in the audience, is there a woman in the audience who's not eaten all of the Girl Scout cookies before? <laughs> right? Fat or thin? <laughs> I'm sorry. People but. <laughs> eat all of the Girl Scout cookies, particularly the Thin Mints, if we're being completely um, honest. Oh, no, the peanut butter patties. Oh, you're a peanut favorite. butter yes. patty girl. That's good. <laughs> um, well, and you point out something interesting, the connection between the shame around eating behaviors and the fact that all that tends to do is drive the behavior deeper or more rooted or anchored inside of a person. So, so you had that whole relationship with body from the beginning that was tumultuous and painful and and violent, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very. Because there was an incident in school. This kid just kept, you know, pushing me and pushing me. And I turned around and punched him because <laughs> I was tired. Of, you know, he just was bullying me. You know, yeah. and I, they, I kept saying to, the, you know, the people at school, like, can you do something about this? And they just ignored it. Mm. And then one day in the hall... And turned around and just like, because he just, he kept kicking my bag, kicking my bag, just saying things to me. And I just turned around and just decked him Mm. and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm supposed to like, no, I'm not supposed to feel anything about that other than like, I just think that's appropriate. I mean, at some (laughs) point you just got to make him stop. I just didn't know what else to do because I like reached out, you know, and then I just was pushed to that Not where I wanted to go, obviously. So school was always very difficult and painful. The relationship at home with mom was hard. Yes, it was very, because, you know, I felt like I was, you know, know, that abandonment issue with my father. Mm -hmm. And um, so then my stepfather, who is my, you know, who I call my dad, because he's been amazing. um, They tried everything they could to get me under control, but I was just so, like, I didn't. Tell me what you mean by out of control. I was just, like, partying all the time with my mm-hmm. friends, and it was a little rough, you know. It was always constant bickering and fighting, and I was just complete asshole to my parents. Mm-hmm. Very much just did not care. Mm-hmm. And then my mom got pregnant with my brother. How old were you when she had so, 15. You were 15? Oh, wow. Yeah. I was so mad. I was like, I don't know why you had it, you know, you're going to be, and I said things that I shouldn't have said. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think you were mad about? Um, that I wasn't the only child, that it was just, you know, no more, it wasn't all about me, mm-hmm. you know, because I was basically raised as an only child sure. for 15 years. Sure. And then this little baby came along. Mm-hmm. 
and that was just after he was born I was happy I was it was it was great but then I felt you know like they just will focus more on Chris mm. than me which is interesting because you talk about like really defiant behavior and that you basically wanted them to leave you alone to let you be and do however you wanted to be and do and then when the attention was not on you anymore then you were upset about that very much so what do you think you were looking for during that time I don't know I think I was looking for what I had you know with that that love with my father that I just didn't you know that that abandonment Mm -hmm. I think I wanted closure on that and I just didn't know how to Mm -hmm. deal with that you wanted something that you really, that neither of the parents involved in your life could give you because it was not about them anyway. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't. Yeah. That's, I think, pretty normal uh, when it comes to parents who abandon us. Yeah, I, I think I took a lot, of, you know, out on them because I was so hurt mm-hmm. that I just, like, completely rejected them. And they tried. They both tried mm-hmm. very much so, you know, all the time. So tell me what your next sort of major point in the story is then I moved well I got kicked out of the house my mom just gave me my money that I had gotten and I went out and blew it mm. a lot of money and was with this guy who was like 10 years older than me how old Almost, were you I was like 18 I was 18 okay and he was 28 years old mm-hmm. pretty much used me for everything mm. and then after that was over I was in between jobs and just kind of floating back between my parents' house. I was I had a roommate, and then I was just kind of not really knowing what to do. How long was that relationship? About a year. Okay. It was very um, toxic. Mm-hmm. He pretty much just, like, he was a drug user, just used me for everything, and... I just, just, I can't really remember, like, when I decided to leave him. I think I just decided to go ahead and just, you know. Be done? Be done. Really? Yeah. Because I was over it. Like, I was just mm. over the bullshit. Was he your first significant relationship? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do all, we do all sorts of things that are not within our character no. to keep, uh, especially when... We're, t- we're in positions of, like, trying to solve ab- abandonment, right? So mm-hmm. then the thing becomes, I hate you, don't leave me. Um, exactly. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, I, I'll push you away, but then I don't want you to go. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with this guy, he was more, like, he just saw the money factor. That's all. And then I just was, like, over it. He tried to hit me. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much, like, my first real domestic, you know, mm-hmm. Um, it was like a hammer and I got rid of, you know, like that scared the crap out of me. So I got rid of, you know, he was gone, got kicked out of my apartment, moved back home. I think there was an incident with me and my cousin. He we got into an argument in my grandmother's house and he spit my face and I walked away, mm. which is something that I never, you know, it's never like only the reason why I didn't like deck him is because. My family, my grandparents. I had the utmost respect for my grandparents, mm-hmm. which I spent a lot of time with them mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So um, they helped raise me mm-hmm. as well because they were a huge factor in my life. 
A positive one? A positive, yeah. My grandfather worked at John Deere for 35 years and then retired and then worked for the courthouse as a bailiff. So, you know. So yeah. so a pretty stable force? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. stable. It was My grandparents were my stable, mm-hmm. you know, the people that I felt, like, safe, you know, mm-hmm. where I could just, they wouldn't judge me or anything. Good. So you moved out yes. again. And so now you're early 20s? Yeah, I was 19, 19 or 20. I moved to Arkansas with my aunt. Okay. Then I met my ex-husband before. I mean, he wasn't my husband, obviously, but, you know, <laughs> uh, I met him, and um, I really, really wasn't sure. You know, I was just trying to, like, get away from the Quad Cities and just be away. I ended up getting a job at a grocery store, and then I ended up meeting Gary, and I wasn't really happy because she saw that he wasn't really that healthy for me because she knew what type of stuff, you know, that I had been through as a kid. Mm. She knew more than I did. And, but it was... She knew more than you did. She knew that things happened to me. That you didn't know. mm -hmm, Yeah. Got it. Yeah. You know, because my aunt, like, there was a lot of secrets in my mom's family. Everybody keeps the secrets. There's lots of secrets in my mom's family. Got it. But your aunt knew. Yeah. So your aunt understood then that those realities for you made you more vulnerable. Yes. Yeah. So she was not digging Gary. No, no. not at all. They tried to get me to leave him, and then I didn't. And then we ended up moving to Kentucky about a year later. Mm-hmm. So because I was having fun, we were having a blast. We were riding horses all the time. I mean, they lived. he lived on a horse ranch with his best friend. Mm. Okay. So we were always, you know, out doing that. So the first year of the relationship, the original, the beginning of the relationship felt good to you? Yeah, it did. You know, it was a friendship. Like, it was everything, and I felt comfortable. Then we moved to Kentucky, and then I felt pressured into getting married to him because of his parents. Okay. And I really didn't want to get married, but I did it anyways because I was just like, I, I wanted to be with Gary, but I didn't know, you know. I feel like I didn't even have a dating, you know, people would date and you know, go on dates and stuff like I never really had that. Mm, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that's hard for a lot of people. Again, circling back to all the circumstances in which you found yourself, none of this trajectory was normal, quote unquote, air quotes there, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, missing the dating piece and just going, let's get well, this is what, I guess this is what we're going to do because it's the, I don't want you to leave. Right. And I'm guessing there was probably some pressure around that as well. Yeah. And I just was like, okay, well, I have somebody that has, you know, it's like my person, you know, yeah, like I'm not gonna, you know, you're not going to leave me. And, you know, I was just like, okay. Mm -hmm. But then it was just like, we got married. He wanted to live in a trailer. No offense, but I'm not a trailer park person. (laughs) He wouldn't always I talk like sometimes, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, I was just, that's not what I wanted. I felt like there was more to that, you know, and he was content with just living in a trailer in the middle of nowhere, tornado land, basically. And pretty much I had to, you know, all the responsibilities of handling everything, bills, everything. How old were you then? In my like early twenties. Yeah. Like okay. 20, 21. Yeah. About 21. And then when I was 22, my son was born. Okay. So, and we were living in Kentucky, and I just wasn't, you know, I just was living, you know, not really happy, or I'd come home, but it just was, I was just there, mm-hmm. existing, basically. So you had a kid? Mm-hmm. 
So what's next? So I was, I tried to go back to school. He pretty much tried to shut that down. He didn't, wasn't happy that, because I was like, I need to do something, you know, I'm, I was bored. I was working at Walmart. I hated it. I wanted to do more with my life. Mm-hmm. And it was a real, lot of pushback from him. We were in Kentucky for about eight years. And then I was just feeling the need to move back. Like I missed my family. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I was going to, you know, I finally was able to go to school. So I was pursuing something, but I wasn't sure mm-hmm. what I wanted to go to school for, but I was just taking classes. Okay. Yeah. So I moved back. I was like, this is going to be good. You know, I get to spend more because I miss my family. I really did. I was gone yeah. like 10 years, basically. So I really missed my family, my mom, my dad, my brother. Mm-hmm. I missed all those Times, but my brother would come and spend summers, you know, a little bit with us. We'd go to like the park in um, Cincinnati. We'd do like some of the different like amusement parks that are around that area. Mm-hmm. So, so you, were, um, so you were close to your brother. Yeah. Backtrack. When I moved, my brother cried and cried. Didn't want me to leave. Mm. And there, there was fifteen years difference. Between yes, you. but he would just follow me around everywhere. He was just, yeah, he mm. was attached to me. So um, you moved back. Did Gary come with you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was the Chase. Fans. Yep. Okay, Chase, Gary, mm-hmm. Adrian. Yep. Moving back to the quads. Yeah, back to the, you know, when some of the hungry hobo and wanted yeah. all the good <laughs> food that I missed. <laughs> Man, aren't all of our hometowns full of like a couple of those places, right? Right. Yeah. Then what's the next thing that stands out about your story that you want to share? Um, I left Gary. Well, yeah. I pretty much, I cheated on him with mm-hmm. Ava's dad because I was just ready to get out. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, let's just blow the doors open and just, you know, I You're had, yeah. Freedom. I was done. Like yeah. I felt like I was locked up, you know, I really felt suffocated. Mm-hmm. So I ended up meeting Ava's dad and it went from there and probably Gary ended up finding out eventually, but then Ava's dad pushed me into divorcing Gary, which mm-hmm. I was just, I wasn't that, I wasn't sure about it either, but yet there was another push, mm-hmm. you know. So I just went ahead and did it, got it done. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the meantime, I was going to school to be an LPN. Okay. So I was almost done. He came to play. Like, I felt free. He was a lot younger than me, but it was kind of rocky. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't. So it's like I'm jumping from one frying pan to another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the story of my life. <laughs> but then probably about... Like six, seven months later, I got pregnant with Ava. It was towards like, I remember it was like beginning of February because my grandfather just died. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell anybody. didn't tell a soul that I was pregnant. And we were all at my grandma's house. And my aunt's like, there's something different about you. I'm just like, mind your business. <laughs> <laughs> like, let me just, and I wasn't, you know, like, I wasn't sure. Like, I was freaked out, you know. And you say that a lot. I wasn't sure. You say that a lot. I do. Yeah. Uh, so you're pregnant with Ava. You're now with Ava's dad. Yes. Okay. Are you guys married? No, no. Never got married. Okay. So what sticks out to you next that's important for you to share? Just like my pregnancy, um, I got pregnant. My family really wasn't happy because, for one, he was black. And for two, it started getting abusive because he found out I was pregnant. And he was hitting me and just trying to basically torture me into having an abortion. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a big deal. And I was just like, I wouldn't do it. I was like, nope, I'm keeping her. You know, it's not your decision. You cannot force this. And he would just lock me in my apartment. He broke my nose. I mean, it was just constant harassment. It was like, it was just constantly. And he tried to leave me in Chicago one time and just off of, you know, just to mess with me mentally. Because I was just like, he wanted, he's like, he asked me to go to the city with him. So I went with him and he tried to leave me up there Mm -hmm. on my son's birthday. But come back, it was in the middle of winter and it was cold. And then he tried to leave me out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. Told me to get out of the car. It was just like I couldn't get him to, like he was stalking me. So he wouldn't, so he would stalk you to be abusive? Yes. Okay. So he wouldn't let you go? Mm-mm. But he didn't really want you me either. Okay. And he just didn't want me pregnant either. The last so, inc- so the last incident was when he got on top of me with a frying pan and tried to hit me. And I ended up having my cell phone because he would take my phone. Mm-hmm. And I threw it in, called 911 and threw it under the bed. Mm. So he was arrested? He was arrested. Okay. He spent some time in jail. Okay. He wasn't there when he was born. All my friends were. Yeah. So that was pretty hard. Yeah. And then I ended up having to go to a shelter because I had nowhere to go. Right. My brother got me kicked out of my apartment because I didn't feel safe after that incident with him because, um, so he had a party at my apartment, typical my brother, and um, he had, and so I got kicked out and I had nowhere to go. So I was kind of like with my grandma at the time mm-hmm. and my uncle had asked me, told me, he thought it would be a good idea if I gave Ava up for adoption. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, thrilled about that either. Mm-hmm. But after I had Ava, it just kind of all meshed together for a while. You know, sure. I had a job. Yeah, you have two kids and a job and you're yeah. on your own and that's hard. Neither parent was helping me. They didn't, you know, Gary refused after we got divorced. He refused to give me any type of child support or anything because he basically, this is how we're going to do it since you want to divorce me. Mm. So I was like, I had to do things his way. Mm. So there was no, it was like a mutual agreement and whatever they call it, the... No fault. Yeah, and then it's just like the split, you know... Everything's split down the middle, yeah. Yeah, so he didn't have to do anything. But he still wouldn't help me out. So you had Chase all the time? I had Chase all the time, and then he would go to his dad's, and then, you know, Ava's dad would barely... He'd come into town, and and he I would see him until Ava was about a year old, because he wouldn't really come around a whole lot. He would come in and out. But then he just disappeared. He left in October. I didn't know that he moved. He moved to Miami. Didn't even tell me. And so, I was just like, "Oh, okay. Like, what the hell, <laughs> you know?" And I. Was, so then, a couple months later, mm-hmm. my mom was diagnosed with the aneurysm, and they want to do a a procedure on her. Mm-hmm. And this is where my heart's getting a little. You know, I'm getting a little. To get a procedure on her. And she didn't make it out of recovery. So that was like... Probably blew your world up. Oh, it completely just... Yeah, it was like, like let's rip your guts out, you know? Mm-hmm. That was just gut-wrenching. So you have... How old were you then? I was... So it's been about 10 years. So I was about 33. Okay. So two kids, very little help, and your mom dies suddenly. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was like, and I, it was hard for me to go to Iowa City because she was in Iowa City. Mm-hmm. Somehow her artery got poked and she bled out. Wow. And she had um, like a softball size like clot in her brain and her head swelled. It was it was pretty traumatic. No, it sounds like it for all of us. Yeah, it sounds awful. Well, it was difficult just to be in Iowa City. I had and Ava was so Ava was a year old, so I couldn't you know really I really didn't feel like I had anybody helping me out. Mm-hmm. Like when I would ask for help, I would just get no. So then I just wouldn't ask anybody. It was hard for me to go up there, but I did go up there. And then my brother and I would fight and argue. You know, he spent a lot of time up there in Iowa City mm-hmm. with your mom. With my mom when okay. she was in the hospital. Got it. Okay. Yeah, he spent a lot of time up there. How long was she up She was there? in there for like two weeks. Got it. Okay. Two weeks, yeah. It was about a two-week frame because it was January 11th when she died. Like something you never prepare yourself for, losing mm-hmm. a parent. Like it's just, it's awful. You had a really complicated relationship with her. And so I wonder sometimes too, I, I just talked to a lot of people who have survived a lot of those things. And I think sometimes those complicated relationships, when they don't have an opportunity to be resolved, and there's the sudden loss piece, you know, that then that's the end of the story, you know, with that part that I think is probably compounds it quite a bit. I don't know, because my mom and I, had, like, it was really weird. The things, like, that led up to before she died. Like, my car broke down, so my mom was taking me to work every day. My mom and I would talk, you know, and she apologized to me. Oh, so you, got, you did get resolution. Yes, my that's mom amazing. made peace, like... My mom made peace. Like, she apologized, and she said she was sorry. She did her best, and, you know, that, that's, like, out of all the things that's happened, you know, like, that's one thing I feel peace about because my mom did love me. You know, she did her best. Good. You know, it's just, like, generational things that has happened, you know, and what happened to her, you know, it's passed down trauma that gets passed down generation upon generation. That's so important to um, one of my favorite things that is passed around sometimes on social media is this idea that if trauma can be passed, so can healing. Yes. Right. And I don't think people realize that we can still heal, you know, even though we have trauma. Yeah. It's just a process. Oh, for sure. I know that two of the huge pieces of your story are your brother and being trafficked. Yes. These are, these are two mm-hmm. huge parts of your story. So I want to make sure we have space for them. Yeah. And we can talk about that. We can talk about Chris. You know, there was a you know time that like I was just like Chris and I were just because I didn't really have anybody to like and my mom was gone. Yeah. Chris was always partying, having a good time. And, you know, I was stuck with kids. So I was not really the happiest. Yeah. I was miserable. And I wasn't really dating. But then I ended up meeting John about a year after my mom died because I wanted to move. Mm-hmm. And then when I met John, that was just like, I don't know. I, they, they call it a grooming process. You know, Pete, basically, you know, it's just like any other type of when you are being coerced and, you know, any type of when they see you as this, and I may, I'm sorry if I'm like skipping through stuff, but it's just no, like, um, but I feel like, you know, like, yeah, we, we, we hit it off. It was, everything was great. You know, we talked, we would, but I didn't meet him for a long time. Cause I was just like, I wasn't sure about him. You know, he's from the city and I just wasn't sure. But then I ended up going up there and seeing him and then everything kind of went from there. And he's just like, Oh, I know how you can make money. And, mm. you know, and 
you'll be fine. You'll be able to take care of Ava. Mm. And um, it went kind of basically from there. I mean, I went from here, you know, and not to mention at the time I was in like trying to find places to live and I was homeless and it was just one of those things that I just was like, I'm trying to get a hold of my life, you know, and I was trying to find solutions. And this felt like a solution. It felt like a solution. I think that's so important for us to hold space for today. So one of the things we've been taught is that um, sex work in any way, shape or form is we judge it as a moral deficit. And, and so often, almost always, and even if it's not the case, it doesn't, in no circumstance is it an issue of morality. Um, it is, uh, it is often in response to economic factors outside of your control. Completely. And like you said, and you're trying to get control again. Yeah. And I couldn't, you know, what was I, I had no resources. Yep. You know, the resources are limited. They're limited and, you know, very limited. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, they just, I feel like I, you know, that the system just wants you to stay down. It's like, it's very hard to get back up mm-hmm. when you are completely knocked down. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, did I want to try it? No, I was, you know, I was just like, okay. And he's just like, oh, it's just like having, you know, just like having sex, you know, just, you know, just not think about it. And mm. then it just kind of went from there. And then I started here. Then I went to the city. Mm-hmm. And then it just took off. And I would travel to different cities. Wow. Mm-hmm. So for people who aren't familiar with the world of sex trafficking, can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. Like there's mm-hmm. like a, I mean, how does it? Okay. There's many different ways it works. I mean, there's your, you have the girls that are always on the corners or, you know, you mm-hmm. see the, uh, see the, I don't even know. I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to use my words, like the, the correct language. You don't have to. I just say the words. <laughs> they call them cluckers, you know, um, and that wasn't the clucker. <laughs> <laughs> And Why do they call them cluckers? I don't know because I always I just I don't know. It's always somebody told me that they're cluckers. Okay, they're just because they're always down on the street, like going back and forth. Okay, and so I was like, okay, the cluckers, you know. And um, even going in Chicago, you'd see them like and like on the west side, mm-hmm. you would see them all, and even the pimps, you know, you would see the pimps, and you know, and there's other ways, but there's. Ways just like there's websites. There is, um, there was Backpage. Backpage was huge. Everybody was on Backpage because everybody was trying to get make money. What is Backpage? Backpage was another, you know, like Craigslist. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, I had pictures. I had, you know, I never had my face shown, but I have, you know, like my tattoos are very much so, no, you know. Mm. You'll remember my tattoos because I have, like, lips tatted on my ass. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had, John had lots of pictures, you know, taken of me. And we'd be in Chicago. And then I'd have a Google number. And then I would just talk to the person and try to get a feel for them. And, you know, because there was times that, you know, the police were always 
doing. So I was trying to make sure my safety was, I was safe all the way around. Mm-hmm. So how long, how long was? About, about two or three years. Okay. It was about two or three years. Cause I was, I was living in hotels. Where were the kids? It, well, Chase was gone. He moved. He went to. His, he went with his dad. Okay. He ended up. I ended up letting him move to Arizona because you know at that time I was homeless. Yeah. So and he wanted to move to Arizona, so I agreed. And he said he was gonna send Chase home. You know, like on summers, and I would see him. That never happened. Ava, I let live with my friend because I didn't want her. You know, I didn't want to just keep bouncing her around from place to place because I felt like it wasn't fair to her. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'd drive up and come home on the weekends or I'd sleep because I was tired. How did you survive that? Detachment. Yeah. I would just, you know, dissociate, like basically just kind of just tune, tune it out. Like I would just, just go with it. It's like, how do you explain it? It's just like when you're in that type of environment, you have to just like, your, your guard is constantly up, but your eyes are, your ears are constantly open. Mm-hmm. I just kind of separated, mm. you know, in my mind. Have you used that as a coping skill throughout your life at other places? Yes. Yeah, I would have guessed yes. as much. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it makes sense that you'd use it here to be able to, I'm sure in your mind, it's the like, well, this is what I'm going to do to make sure I can survive. You're talking about survival. Oh, it was complete survival. And, right. you know, and it was just every day just trying to get that money and trying to get that dollar and being... You know, constantly with him screaming at me on my ass every day. I need this money, and he'd manipulate me and tell me, you know, he loved me and he that we were gonna be together. And he'd come down and spend time with Ava and like, oh, like we're a family. Mm. But then he was just a complete asshole and just treated me the worst mm-hmm. and just beat me down mentally more than anything. I mean, he's, he's put his hands on me a few times. Mm-hmm. He, um, I was driving home from Pittsburgh, and he punched me in the eye while I was driving. Well, almost lost control of the vehicle. Mm. And So you were in this relationship with him, which then is also paired with the being trafficked at the same time mm-hmm. for three years, you said. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how you got out. Um, I was tired of him beating on me, mm-hmm. and I was tired of being completely ripped away from my, basically, you know, like, he would steal money from me all the time. Like, I was, he would just manipulate me into giving, you know, all of everything. Mm-hmm. I gave him everything. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I was like, my friends, like, I lost a lot of my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about Ava, and my, you know, my kids, like, I was like, I have to do something. I have to get my life back together. This is not how I want to live. Yeah. I was over it, you know. Yeah. I felt like I was violated on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and I didn't want that anymore. So did you just leave? Um, yeah. I had, you know, at the time I didn't have a car, so I took the bus home. Mm-hmm. And pretty much I was still in contact with him because he just kept basically mind-fucking me. Mm-hmm. You know, excuse my language, but that's the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. And he just, I mean, I came home and cried because that income was gone. Sure. I mean, And I then there had to be this sense of desperation about what do I do next? Yeah. Here, as we sort of wrap, uh, I want to know what, it, what your healing has looked like for you. Um, since I've been home, I've been pretty much like 
go into like, let's get my life in order. I've been solid for the last like seven years, six, six years. Everything's been solid. I moved around, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and I got Ava back and mm-hmm. I wanted just to have my relationship back with my kids. And I've been going to therapy, mm-hmm. just started back with EMDR therapy. You know, COVID has to just mm-hmm. jack everything up, doesn't it? Yeah, but we've talked about EMDR on the podcast before, and EMDR is hands down one of the most effective strategies for trauma survivors. It is. It really is. And it's the more I go, mm-hmm. you know, every session I feel better. Tell me what you want uh, other survivors to know, um, maybe about about themselves or about um, what's possible for them. Tell me something you want them to know. Um, I feel like, you know, it's they can, even though it seems dark and grim, that you can pull yourself out of this. There's days that you just, you know, want to give up, but you can't. You have to keep, you know, moving because there's more out there. You just have to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep knocking on doors and trying to see what fits and trying to find your happiness again. I'll ask survivors often, what do you want the audience to know? And they almost always say, just keep going. Just keep going, really. Just keep going. Just keep going. Well, thank you for that and for the gift of your vulnerability and your story and your willingness to tell it and to access parts of you that I can tell. I mean, people aren't with us, but um, I've told my own story, so I know what it takes to be able to pull those parts of you to the surface. Uh, and so I think the same is true though in hearing it. So if you're hearing the, uh, Adrian's story today and there are parts of it that have pulled your own story to the surface, find somebody trusted, a space that's trusted, um, take very good, very slow, very intentional care of yourself and just keep going. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for being willing to be a witness to these women and to their stories. If you loved today's episode, be sure to subscribe and write a review. And most importantly, invite the women you know to join this chorus of courage and help us make a world where every body belongs. I'll see you all soon.